Wow, what a busy week in rock and roll history, don't you think? Mm-hmm. 50 years, the 50 years of rock and roll, certainly there's a lot in July, man. Oh, for sure. Uh, so what are we going to be talking about today? We've got one of the most famous onstage breakups ever. One of the largest televised events ever. It's a, it's going to be an amazing road trip, I think. I agree. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes? Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our Wayback Music Machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. So we are about to visit July 14th, 1973, one of the most famous onstage breakups ever. I think we have to go to Hollywood for this, though, don't we? We do indeed, at the John Wayne Theater. Well, let's do it then. Let's go to Hollywood, California, July 14th, 1973. Can you punch that in? I sure can, Pilgrim. You've seen this before. The Apollo Command Module... What a marvel of engineering. Got an electronic ignition system, reclining seat, a digital clock. What this thing goes through, it has to be strong. So its structure is welded into a single unit. Chrysler Plymouth welds their car bodies together for the same reason, strength. This is a unit body that flies. Of course, you can't have one of these, but you can have one of these. The 1973 Chrysler New Yorker Brougham. Unibody construction, electronic ignition system, reclining seat. You can even order a digital clock if you want to. All put together to last longer than ever before. But maybe it won't go as far as Apollo. But who wants to keep a car for 500,000 miles? Chrysler New Yorker. Extra care in engineering. It makes a difference. Chrysler, New Yorker, a car so big it needed its own postal code. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember how huge the cars were back then? <laughs> my, my first car was a 1968 Chrysler Newport. Oh, okay. Huge, Tony. I could fit nine people easily in that car. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember how long the, like the, the trunks on those, I mean, the hoods on those things oh. were about six feet long, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't, I, I, Probably if I was to drive one now, I'd be feeling like I'm driving a Mack truck because I'm so used to a smaller car, you know, so. Oh, yeah, they were wild, eh? They were great. Great cars, great cars. Great commercial. Great yep. commercial. So your first car was a Newport? It was. <laughs> my my first car was a real POS. I'm sure you know what that stands for. I I'm sure not... do. <laughs> it was a uh, Mercury Topaz. What was it? What was it? It was a Mercury Topaz. And, uh Oh my gosh, we lost a lot of money when we sold that thing because so many repairs and everything. But awful, awful. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't sell. We didn't sell the Newport. We just buried it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are in Hollywood, California, at the John Wayne Theater, and nice uh, John Wayne reference earlier. Very well Thank done. You. <laughs> but uh, this is one of those iconic moments in rock and roll history when a band breaks up on stage live in front of everybody and what do you do so the everly brothers phil and don everly and they're partway through a set and don is on stage 
very obviously drunk and Phil finally says enough and smashes his guitar and storms off the stage and Don attempts to finish the show by himself and tells the audience that the Everly Brothers are done. And basically it was 10 years before they performed again together, but what an event. I mean, there's a bit of a background story that people may not know, but this was iconic. That's sad, you know, because for those of, I mean, I I think you do too. I love, love, love the Everly Brothers. And just prior to this concert, they had just signed a new contract with RCA Records and they put out two albums that are, are, are classics to this day. And for them to break up the way they did, I mean, you're going to break up, you're going to break up, but on stage in front of thousands, smashing your guitar, sounds like sounds like the Badgley Christmas dinner, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure, like we were saying before, this had to inspire the breakup in Spinal Tap, had to be based on this. 100%, 100%. But the backstory, because there is a little more of a backstory with this, uh, the breakup happened... Uh, First of all, Don uh, had a big history of substance abuse, and uh, he tried committing suicide a couple times. It really concerned Phil. Uh, But Don actually told Phil a couple of weeks earlier that he wanted out. So the two of them knew that it was coming. But um, during the gig, uh, Don was so drunk that Phil just couldn't deal with it anymore, you know, because Don was slurring his words and forgetting lyrics. And, and that's what caused Phil just to say, I'm done. I've had enough. And he smashed the guitar and he left the stage. Um, I guess from what I was able to tell that Don had turned to drink uh, to deal with the fact that he knew this was going to be his last show with the Everleys. And uh, bad idea. And it just didn't, didn't end well, you know. And uh, tough to see that when, when substance abuse can ruin uh, brilliant careers, isn't it? Yeah, it's a shame, you know, and, and and at this time, they were both putting out solo records. They'd done the Everly Brothers albums, and, and Phil and Don had put out solo. And by the way, for and I might put it in the Spotify playlist, Phil does a great version of The Air That I Breathe that came out just around this time. Fantastic, fantastic version of that song. But it is so, it's just, you know, it's just not the way you want to go out on stage, drunk, one brother smashing things. It's just not the way you want to go out. No, exactly. And it was about 10 years before they uh, did any kind of reconciliation. They had met at their father's funeral a couple of years later. In Didn't 19- speak, though. Didn't speak. No, that's right. They just were at the funeral. Uh, but they did reunite. Uh, at, it was at the Royal Albert Hall, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. 1983, yeah. And what about the first... Uh, there's a, a connection to the Beatles here, isn't there? I'll let you talk about that since uh, you're the Beatles guy, but... Well, first of all, at that concert was George Harrison and Ringo, or Paul McCartney. They, they went to the show, big big Everly fans. Harrison, in fact, had covered Bye Bye Love on his Dark Horse album. But they could see that this group was ready to go back together, and they actually wanted to record. So the next year, they did an album called EB84, and the first single, the first song they recorded is a song called On the Wings of a Nightingale, which was produced by Dave Edmonds, but it was written by Paul. Paul never released his own version of the song. And the song was a worldwide top 10 on the adult contemporary charts. And I don't know if you've ever seen the video, uh, Tony, but it's a very emotional video where they, the brothers are working on this old car together. And they, it's just, for me, it chokes me up every time I see it. So uh, it's a, and it's a great song too, by the way. Well, and it's an incredible history, right? I mean, they were performing since they were children. Uh, 
when they were 20 and 18 respectively they went solo uh, like as the everly brothers and bye bye love was their first big hit but 24 top 40 hits that's amazing isn't it yeah, they were just, they were, they, you know, up until 61, 62, they were, everything they did was almost, you know, in gold. And they had, you know, three number ones. Um, they were huge. And unfortunately, by the end of the 60s, their career had um, somewhat slid in terms of charts. Although in Canada, they kept charting for some bizarre reason. Canada was the only country in the later half of the uh, 60s where they kept consistently had charted hits here. Yeah, what a anyway. I'm glad that they reconciled, you know. And uh, Phil died in uh, 2014, but uh, it, uh, it was nice to see that they did reconcile. They were able to put the past behind them, at, at least a little bit, you know. We should put the video for um, on the wings of a nightingale and choke everybody up. Yeah, we should uh, put. A, I'll put it if you remind me. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah, we can have people check that out. Now, I'll bet this week was pretty interesting on the charts. The charts are interesting because this is, you know, 1973. And, you know, there hadn't been a big movement in music in America. So I took a look at the the singles charts. And number five was George Harrison. Give me love, give me peace on earth, which was a previous number one. Do you remember Shambhala by Three Dog Night? I'm a Three Dog Night fan, so I do. See, I thought you would because of their use of harmony, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great song. I just, you, when you do these charts, Tony, forget songs. You go, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that song. And you go, oh, I love this song. Number three is Jim Crochet, Bad, Bad, Leroy Brown. Do you know uh, my connection to that song? No. Okay. So every musician will tell you the moment that they got the bug. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine is grade three, sitting in a gymnasium. And I remember it like it was yesterday. This is how like wow um sitting in a gymnasium and hearing uh a middle school band who probably wasn't even very good playing bad bad leroy brown by jim croce and i remember you know i I literally remember where i was sitting and what it looked like and watching it like it was yesterday and it was like a thunderbolt for me that was that was like i gotta do this that was my moment when i knew that I had the the music bug, but uh, you know, just a real connection to that song. So, oh, do you remember what it was about that particular performance or song that kind well, of? Well, um, I just liked the song. I heard it on the radio, and I thought, oh, this these guys are playing a song that I love on the radio. You know, so <laughs> that's a very cool story. So that song means a lot to you, I guess. Yes, absolutely. It's a good song. It's a, it, it's our co- we used to have a cottage, and it was always the Jim Croce's greatest hits album was on the turntable up in that cottage all the time. So, number two is my favorite Paul Simon solo song. I'm, it's my favorite, Kodachrome. Uh, That's a great song. Oh, so good. It, although my second favorite is Graceland, which features the Everly Brothers singing backup. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Graceland's great too. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. And number one was our friend, your favorite, my favorite, Billy Preston. Will it go round in circles? Was number Which one, another great song. Great. See, so see what I mean? Like you, you, you do these church, you go, wow, those are five great songs, right? Oh yeah, it's per- a great week. Uh, so now I guess we can jump to New York City, can't we? I love New York City. <laughs> well, we're gonna go to July thirteenth. 1974 and we're going to be talking about the boss so punch it in and let's head over not my boss because you know no just joking okay (laughs) (laughs) we're ready all right here we go 
We're here we are, Greenwich Village, 1974, July 13th. And this is a big moment because Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band are playing the first of a three-night, six-show residency at a newly opened club called Bottom Line in New York City. This club actually opened on February 11th, 1974, so it hadn't been open very long when the boss I've played there. I've been there, there. too. Been oh, there. you've been to Bottom Line? Wow. I have, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, but this really created a buzz in the music industry, this show, and it really helped uh, launch Springsteen's career. And, uh, you know, the rest was history, but... It uh, must have been a great live show. The E Street Band was fantastic. Well, Rolling Stone magazine would call the series of concerts as one of the 50 moments that changed rock and roll. So, yeah, it was, and I, I think there's bootleg circulating because it was broadcast on one of the shows is broadcast on WNEW radio in New York. So I'm sure if we do a little search, you know, not there's so many bootlegs of Springsteen. I mean, the guys and he's also released almost every concert live anyways. Now, what, so, when were you at this club? Like, when did you? A couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of just see what it was, you know? Because it closed in, what, 2014 or so, right? Yeah, so it would have been, I was with Andrea, so maybe 20, see, I said a couple of years ago, thinking that I was still in 2010. Uh, <laughs> it would have been about 2008, 2007, 2007, around then. But it's one of those iconic venues and the list of people who performed there unbelievable well that's just that because because at the time streisand was recording a live album there so obviously i didn't get to see her performance obviously but we wanted to come just check out the club because that she was going to do a show there right so uh, that's amazing and uh, you know i i really hope i really hope uh post-covid here that venues like this can survive because there appear to be fewer and fewer of them aren't there Mm-hmm. And some of the good ones in Toronto have already, we've lost them. And I know that in New York, there's a, I, I went to a club just bef- in February of 2020. So just before the big lockdown, I went to Cafe Wa, which was the first place that Hendrix and Dylan ever played in New York. And, and what a great club, Tony. Um, and we saw a Beatle tribute band there. And it was just a fun night. So they're, they're reopening. They've reopened, which is really good news. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. even here in Ottawa, we've lost uh, some venues. And, well, some of the venues that I gigged at, actually, uh, a couple of them are shuttered permanently, you know, and that's never fun. Where, where did you gig? I'm curious. Well, there was a, a jazz club downtown. Was uh, We played there. Uh, we had a standing gig there once a month um, called Vineyards. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, this great little jazz club uh, in a cellar uh, and it, it's been around for 40 years or so and, and they just couldn't do it once the pandemic hit you know and but we play all over the place in Ottawa but that place shut its doors and then there was another restaurant where we were playing all the time that was that shut its doors as well and tough you know it must be sad for you to kind of see the club that you use. you know what I mean like it, it's just it's to me it would be very sad well yeah and it's a uh, for the jazz scene in ottawa like vineyards was an institution right everybody uh who's who is anybody in in the ottawa jazz scene has played at least one show at vineyards you know and it was a as a neat place to play so uh sad to see it go but um clubs like this bottom line must have been great in its heyday i can only imagine well just i mean even you know you look at the old recordings of dylan in greenwich village playing various clubs and and uh I mean, I, I, walking in Greenwich Village, even today, you see all these little clubs downstairs and stuff. And, and I just, you know, Toronto, 
we we used to have Yorkville, which is now Yorkville. <laughs> All the clubs are gone from there. But one of my favorite clubs in Toronto is a place called Hughes Room. And uh, I loved Hughes Room because you got a dinner at a small stage. And I saw Straubs there and, and Kate and McGarrigal and, and, and Ron Hines, so many people. And it's gone. And it's really heartbreaking because these clubs, like the bottom line, like the Hughes Room, like the vineyards and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're, they're gone for good, right? Well, that's right. This uh, Springsteen show, though, uh, back in 74, was notable for a few reasons. Um, he had just released Born to Run, which would become one of his big hits. But Jungle Land, one of the earliest ever uh, versions of Jungle Land. And I got to tell you, Jungle Land is one of my favorite Springsteen songs. Do you like that tune? Oh, I, I love the Born to Run album. Okay. I, I mean, it's it's been with me since 75, and I just love it to death. Yeah, because Jungle Land uh, wasn't cut on album until quite a while after this gig, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, in fact, at this gig, uh, you know, the famous thing about Jungle Land is Clarence Clemens' brilliant, brilliant saxophone solo in the middle of that. But at this gig, uh, it was a guitar solo actually so clemens was playing throughout but uh it was a an extended guitar solo uh, they didn't settle on the sax solo until later but that sa- saxophone solo is is absolutely brilliant that's my favorite clarence clemens solo actually that's on the darkness on the edge of town album right yes yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah. brilliant um what a solo just the way he comes in with that first oh, note and it's haunting you know he he was um he he's just felt every note you know what i mean he uh the big man, yeah. yeah I, the big I saw man. him play with Ringo Starr. Oh, did you? Um, yeah, and one of the all-star bands he played. So he's just amazing to see live. Oh, absolutely. So uh, what was on the charts that week? See, I didn't forget this time. <laughs> well, you know, this is a good segue because the, the Born to Run album, which is now a classic album, only peaked at number three, which is still good. I'm not saying it's not good, but you would think it would have been a number one album. But the two singles off the album... Um, Born to Run peaked at 23, if you can believe that. And one of my favorite songs on Born to Run, 10th Avenue Freezeout, peaked Great at song. 83. Gosh. 83. But 10th Avenue Freezeout is a fantastic song. What the hell's the matter with people? I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this could answer the question. The top five singles that week were Gladys Night of the Pips, On and On, Gordon Lightfoot, one of my favorites, Sundown. Oh, what, uh, what a great song. Oh, he's... And, what a great artist. We we need we we haven't talked about Lightfoot, but he's you know, wow. Just I just read a new interview with him, brand new interview, and he's still sharp as a tack, you oh, know. Oh, excellent, excellent. Number three was Hughes Corporation, Rock the Boat, don't rock the boat, baby. Um, oh yeah. Number number two, a, an artist who I I'm, I'm gonna say I love and is underrated. John Denver, Andy's song. Well, you know, I'm a Denver fan. I saw Denver live. And, uh, that must have been incredible. It was, you know what? His band was so tight. Um, incredible. Uh, yeah, I loved it. Great show. Did, did he talk a lot? Like, did he kind of create a very intimate atmosphere? He didn't talk a lot. He did talk generally between every song, but not like, he wasn't like Stevie Wonder or anything like that, where <laughs> he'd start, you know, go on for 15 minutes. No, he'd just chat a little bit, but it was, it was a, a pretty intimate atmosphere. And, uh, yeah. but I just remember how good the band was too. I wish I'd seen him live. I never did, but I've seen video clips. But. And number one, not my favorite, George McRae with Rock Your Baby. Not Rock the Boat, because we rocked the boat already. Now we're going to rock your baby. Yeah, not my favorite song either. But uh, yeah, interesting what was on the charts. But uh, I'm shocked that uh, 10th Avenue Freeze Out 
you know, peaked way back in the 80s. Let's say. <laughs> Unbelievable, eh? It is. Well, you know what? We're going to jump ahead, though, to one of the biggest. I, I would say this is still oh, the biggest. Yeah, maybe the biggest musical event still. I can't think of anything bigger than this, even to the present day. Can you? Um, no, not even SARS talk. No, no. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Live Aid. So we're going to jump ahead. I guess since we're in the States, let's stay in the States. But we'll be talking. Uh, Live Aid was uh, both in Philadelphia at JFK Stadium and at Wembley in London. But why don't we head over to Philadelphia? But we'll be talking a lot about the uh, Wembley show as well. So why don't we punch in July 13th, 1985. There you go. Okay, let's, uh, let's head to Live Aid. So here we are, July 13th, 1985 in Philadelphia for the second half of just one of the most monumental events in rock history, Live Aid, put together by Bob Geldof in mid-year. And uh, I don't know about you, Tony, but I remember my friend Greg Heath and I at uh, 7.01 in the morning started watching it on Much Music. They show the whole thing. We watched it to the bitter end. Um, And uh, first thing was, of course, the Royal Welcome, and then we got... I just love status quo opening with a John Fogarty song rocking all over the world. And uh, what an event live aid with so many of the top musicians of the time and of all time, quite frankly. Well, can you imagine uh, the, the juggling act that Geldof must have done to try to convince all those people to do this? You know, I'm sure I'm sure he told, you know, Paul McCartney that, oh, Bowie's doing it. And he told Bowie that, oh, Queen's doing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and and I remember one of the members of Spandau Ballet saying, you know, he's sitting in a restaurant and Geldof's got his face pushed up against the window. And he's hammering on the window, pointing at him, going, you're going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but the lineup, the lineup is incredible, right? I mean, oh. I'll just read off some of the names here. Paul McCartney, Phil Collins, The Who, U2, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Queen, Tina Turner, The Cars, Neil Young, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Brian Adams, Hall & Oates, Lionel Richie, Led Zeppelin, among others. Status quo, interesting choice for the first uh, the first act to kick it all off at Wembley. And uh, I love their set, actually. They uh, they sound like a bar band playing in front of oh, 80,000 people, you know? A great set. Rocking all over the world was an excellent way to start that. And, and some of the bands that performed, people don't talk about it anymore. Like, I really loved Sade's performance. I I love Sade, first of all, but so do I. That, their performance was amazing. And uh, there were some really big highlights and a couple of lowlights, but some of the highlights, <laughs> this was... Uh, beamed to over 1.5 billion people in 160 countries so it was the biggest live broadcast ever known but some of the statistics when they go back they say that probably about 40 percent 40 percent of earth's population watched at least part of the live broadcast like that's astounding it's pretty phenomenal isn't it and um, of course, uh, I'm sure the one that stands out for everybody is Queen's 21-minute set, as in, in many people's minds is considered the greatest live set in music history. I would say it's got to be right up there. It's so fantastic. Which is, you know, it's portrayed in the film, isn't it? Not? Oh, the that's Freddie right. Mercury film? Yeah. And have you ever seen the video where they compare the two, the actual? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? But, um, and Queen were... Uh, a little reluctant to do this, I guess. But, uh, I mean, they just, Freddie Mercury just made Wembley his own. And, and what a set. Uh, amazing. 
I think the only one that rivaled Queen was U2. Yeah. Uh, and that, people talked about that for a few few months afterwards, too. U2 kind of, they, they didn't steal the show by any stretch, but they certainly, like Queen, they, um, they, they gave a good show, too. But Queen is iconic. I think the other funny thing is McCartney's mic failure. Yeah. <laughs> he starts starts doing let it be and the mic isn't working. It's like, yee. But he, you know, the crowd was singing the words, Whoa. which is so, I mean, if you that, that, that does not bring a tear to your eye, nothing will. Well, and his mic was, was off for almost two minutes. I know. Poor Paul. <laughs> his first live performance in England in nearly a decade. And uh, this is what happens. Okay, it's Paul. <laughs> you know, and... Um, some of the others, uh, Phil Collins actually performed in both, performed at <laughs> Wembley and then took the Concord. And uh, you know what? You uh, talk about uh, the Philadelphia portion of his. Uh, no, no. Set. Well, because no, Philadelphia was a bit of a, a, a mashup. But I want you to talk about Zeppelin. But I'm going to say before we do that, Bob Dylan actually started something at this concert. He made a comment that Willie Nelson heard. Oh, and, Yes. That's right. And that's how Farmaid started, because Bob Dylan, in typical curmudgeon fashion, and I love Dylan. I think everyone who knows me knows that Dylan's kind of second to the Beatles for me. But Dylan's like, well, maybe we could get some of the extra money to the farmers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he basically said, you know, we're giving all this money overseas. Let's give some of it here. And he took a lot of heat for that comment, actually. <laughs> He sure did. But it caused, not caused, but it, it, William Nelson went, okay, why don't we do farming, Bob? And they did, and they've been doing it ever since. So, but there, there was a bit of controversy with Phil Collins drumming for the Great Red Zeppelin, because, of course, their drummer had passed away by then, John Bonham. Yeah. But Zeppelin reunited, I think, for the last time. I think this um, was it. And uh, yeah. So Phil Collins takes the Concord over from Wembley and sits in with Led Zeppelin and. Um, the members of Zeppelin were really unhappy with Phil's drumming and uh, they blocked release of this performance. So trying to find footage of Phil Collins drumming with Led Zeppelin at Live Aid is almost impossible to find because they didn't give their permission uh, for that video to be aired. So, uh, but they were really, really upset about it. They said, you know, uh, they felt like Phil had no idea what was going on in the songs and uh, just bashing away back there and, and treating it like a joke. And now you said you didn't find it that bad watching Phil, but. Uh, no, no, I didn't. I, I, I remember, I, I mean, I have a vivid memory of this concert because it was like, I mean, I even, I even made notes with my friend. I thought, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't John Bonham, but he wasn't trying to be. I think Phil was, you know, doing Phil Collins with the Genesis, like Phil Collins drumming with Zeppelin probably doesn't work, but it was okay. It wasn't. Yeah, but they were very unhappy about it, and so they blocked release of it. So trying to find footage of this is almost impossible. Yeah, I have a four-DVD set with the entire concert, and that's not on it. It's the only thing not on it. Everything, even Dylan's uh, comment is still on it, but that's not not and void. Yeah, you know, I wonder if... uh the days of events like live aid are done or not you know uh, what a what a i remember that i was 16 at the time i didn't see the whole thing but i did see a lot of highlights of it but um i wonder i i mean i'd love to think that these kind of things will happen again it was a neat idea um i think history generally looks on it well i'm um but it was certainly the idea of of musicians doing something and coming together and and using 
their platform to try to uh, make change for the greater good was a was a fantastic idea. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Geldof in his book, uh, his first book, he talks about this, and he he based this whole thing on the concept for Bangladesh, which up to that point had been the biggest kind of multi rock star for starving people, which had George Harrison, mm-hmm. Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan. And he actually met with George and got advice. And Harrison's one piece of advice was, don't go through UNICEF. Get your own boat, buy your own food, and go over. And he did. They um, they, they, they bought their own ship, they bought tons of food, and they went over um, and made a deal with the governments. They, they, they bypassed all of the UNICEFs and all that. But what was interesting, Tony, is that the country that gave the most money per capita for that concert, because you could call in and donate money, was the country's it was the world's poorest country watching the show, which was Ireland. They gave more money than any other country because I guess they understood, um, you know, dire poverty. But um, I, I think I hope that these days are not gone. I hope that there's going to be another. I would love to see them do a concert like this after the pandemic's over. I would love. To, to pay tribute to the people who have been working through it all and, and the, the, the front line, the doctors, nurses, everybody, and maybe raise some money for people who have been suffering, you know, like especially in the smaller countries. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope something like that happens too. And uh, certainly there are enough big artists left who are still alive. Like, you know, one of my things is I, I'm not sure that the current, crop of musicians who are popular could pull off this kind of thing um i was just going to say that i don't i don't see the same social conscience with the taylor swifts or the bts or maroon five or i don't see it maybe it's there and i'm missing it and if it is correct me but I, i don't see it like not like these guys yeah and um who knows you know uh in terms of would people uh the loyalty to bands like uh is a little different nowadays too, right? With streaming and everything. That's a whole other discussion for another time. We could talk about that all day, but uh, I certainly hope these events continue and I'd love to see it. Uh, But you know what? Uh, Live Aid was, it certainly was a game changer. Um, People still talk about it. Of course, that Queen set is always first and foremost on people's minds. And I rewatch that set periodically. You know, I I don't know. I, I thought it was brilliant as well. Joe's, that just gives you chills. Yeah, absolutely. What was interesting was that in the UK, the week after Live Aid, every band that performed, it was really weird. Every band that performed at Live Aid had records charting. And, and of course, Queen charted the highest, followed by U2. McCartney went back in the charts. Ultravox, Boomtown Rats, Hall & Oates. It was just, it was like the, the goodwill carried over. And um, a, a lot of the artists said... Anything we make at this point forward, we'll give to the Live Aid because they felt like we shouldn't be benefiting from this concert. So if we have large, large record sales due to the concert, we'll donate that money, which was kind of cool, right? Yeah, that's very cool. So what was on the charts during Live Aid? Well, during during Live Aid in uh, in uh, America, the top five singles was one of my favorites, Eurythmics, Would I Lie to You. Yeah, great song. Uh, oh, it's such a great, and it's used as a theme song to Border Patrol. <laughs> I just love um, Survivor. The search is over. Uh, the search is still on for Survivor. I don't know where they've gone. Yeah, where, yeah where are they now? Um, That's right. What <laughs> <laughs> it wonders, two it wonders. Um, Prince and the Revolution, fantastic track. Raspberry Beret. Yep. Two was 
your friend Phil, Phil Collins, the studio. And number one is Duran Duran with a view to a kill. Now, um, Duran Duran, wasn't Simon LeBond, uh didn't he have the note heard around the world at Live Aid? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit, that was a bit of a uh, wincing moment, but... Hey, more power to him, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah. was. It was. That he, was sad. Uh, he hit a bad note uh, during Live Aid and <laughs> went live to one and a half billion people. And he said after it was, you know, maybe the worst moment in his career. <laughs> he was, and you know what's sad is that in 2021, we're still talking about it. <laughs> oh, that's right. But uh, you know what? View to a Kill, though. Great song. I, well, it was a decent Bond theme for sure. It wasn't bad. I, I, I like the other one, too. That was around the same time as Aha's theme for a Bond film and the, the, the title went out in my head but there were some interesting Bond themes in the 80s and oh, absolutely. Duran Duran was certainly up there absolutely now what do you think should we uh, jump back to the present why not oh why not wow great trip all right here we go punch it in let's go home what a fantastic road trip eh? and uh, nice to stay all on the continent this time for a change instead of hopping all over the place mm-hmm. I agree and uh, for those of you who don't know, we're going to be uh, also recording in another couple of days for our Spotify radio show called Before My Time. And uh, what's up on the next Before My Time episode, Aaron? I believe it's Joni Mitchell Blue Part 2, is it not? It side is, two, yeah. Part two. Yeah, we're well, going to play, yeah, we'll play side two of Joni Mitchell's <laughs> iconic album, Blue, because it's 50 years old. And we'll be talking about each of those tracks and spinning each of the tracks. It'll be a great time. And you know what? I think we should also do a shout out to our friend Bernard Fraser's excellent podcast called The Essence of Cool. So three great shows. You can listen to this one. uh, Then you can go to Spotify and you can listen to Before My Time, which is our radio show. And then look up The Essence of Cool, Bernard Fraser's uh, wonderful music podcast. He's got some great guests on there. Well, you know, the thing is eh, that um, the the Spotify show is so different from the other two because we get to play music. Well, that's and, right. Uh, Bernard's show is a bit different because he brings in guests and, and um, they talk. And then our show, we talk about things. So there are three very different shows, but we're all, all very good listening experiences, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. And folks, we'd like to thank you for listening in on our road trip because uh, your support of independent podcasting is really important. And, and maybe share with some friends, guys. You know, by all means, just please share the link or share it. And, and I and I know a few people do, and I, I know we want to thank you for that. But keep sharing, guys. That's how people hear about us. Well, that's right. We'll get that Wayback Music Machine army in motion and, uh, and keep sharing <laughs> this thing. Well, it looks like we're pulling up to your street, but uh, great road trip, Aaron. And uh, have a good week, my friend. Well, you too, and I hope that uh, the clouds blow over and we can have a nice weekend. And uh, you have a good week too, and drive safely, Tony, because there's some some speeders on the road today, I noticed. I will do, and uh, we'll see you soon. (laughs) Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Deneen. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. 
You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine podcast is a Stewie Tunes production. Whether taking a road trip to the beach, heading to the mountains, or driving to the city, summer adventures are nonstop fun in a new Honda. But let's face it, summer trips can really add up. That's why I love the fuel efficiency of Honda. With Honda, you can save your money for other things, like that awesome keychain at the convenience store, that brand new album you wanted, or whatever else your heart desires. New Hondas are arriving daily. See your local Honda dealer and start your summer adventures today.